Hello, people of the past. My name is Roots of Justice. And what you're about to experience is me attempting to go back to the past and provide information that could be crucial. I must inform you all that this episode of the Dub Talk podcast contains adult language and situations that may not be appropriate for all listeners, so listener discretion is advised. Alright, here I go. El Psy Congru. This is Roots of Justice, time travel attempt number 35. Some things kind of went wrong here and there. Um, I think I might have accidentally forgot to inform people that there might be spoilers for the Steins Gate anime. The, the whole, the whole thing. I um, I think that might be the problem. I don't know. Um, I, I guess I'm gonna go back again and see what happens. I'll say Congru. This is Roots of Justice, time travel attempt number 492, I think. I, I lost track. I've gone back so many times to try and fix this. I just, I just don't know what went wrong. I don't know what happened, and now I'm stuck. Um, maybe, maybe it was me forgetting to inform everyone that this podcast... It, it contains opinions that reflect the individual participants and may not reflect Dubtalk as a whole, but I don't know. It, it just, it doesn't seem like that'd work, but who knows? Um, I guess I'll go back, try again, see what happens. Uh, so this is Roots of Justice signing out. Uh, El Psy Congru, I guess. Enjoy the show. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. You've bypassed the organization's constraints. You have avoided their spying agents, and we've met in this secret science lab here. Get, we're about to get hog wild as we go through hopping the world's line to try and get to the bottom of Steins Gate as the team of Dub Talk investigates this delightful, strange anime of time travel, conspiracy, paranoia, and madness. Joining me around the table, we have my starting friend, Roots. Have we met somewhere before? You, I, I got a weird case of deja vu going on. El Psy Kongru, my friend. As well, we have... Jarius Jet, Divine Nega. What are we going to do today, Theodorian? What are we going to do indeed? Science, of course! And finally, joined from the far reaches of the other side of the country, we have... Lack the Watcher. That cake is a lie! <laughs> it's real in our hearts. And so, our team begins our foray into the realm of Steins Gate as we begin investigating these strange phenomena 
of time travel and John Titor. But first, a summary of this series for those of us who are not familiar with Steins Gate, who come from a less populous world line. The summary. Rintaro Okabe is a self-proclaimed mad scientist who believes there is an international organization that's conspiring to reshape the world according to its own interests. He and his friend Itaru Hashida in inadvertently create a gadget able to send message to the past. The discovery and experimentation of this instrument becomes a catalyst for fundamental alteration to the present. Oblivious to the consequences of their actions, Rintaro and his friends end up creating modifications of grievous proportions. He must then try to find a way to return to as close as possible as the original timeline in order to save his precious lab members. Uh, and so... Okay, um, I'm sorry guys, my doorbell this right I will be right back. Sorry, it's uh, a temporal flux, don't worry, I'll send a d-mail back. There seems to be some interference, my... My reading Steiner ability is detecting an interruption in the world lines. Quickly, we must proceed on to the next thing of question of what exactly was our first exposure to Steins Gate. These clues may help us figure out the exact nature of the mystery confounding us to help us solve the riddle of what makes this show tick. Roots, tell us, what was your exposure to the show? I really kind of started it when the, uh, the Blu-rays were first starting to get released. I watched maybe... About an episode or two worth, and it, for reasons, I just kind of stopped and never got back to it until the idea of bringing this up as a classics episode came about, and here I am. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Jet, how about you? Oh, um, well, believe it or not, I actually watched the show way back during its original simulcast in 2011. Uh, Crunchyroll nice. Roll, Crunch Roll were very different in those days. <laughs> <laughs> that's how, that's how, uh, but, the, so, but they did have it, and so I watched it that way. Um, I never got it. I never quite got around to buy the Blu-rays for some reason. So mm. I hadn't actually seen the dub until I watched it for this episode. So um, that was an interesting little experience. Cool. And how about you, Lack? Well, this was kind of my first real experience with Steins Gate. I mean, I had known about it for years now, but I had never really given it like the time of day to really sit down and watch it. Uh, I did watch the first episode dubbed on Hulu, and then I just never got back into it. Mm. And after this episode was announced, I started watching it on Verve, and I've watched it the whole way through now. So, I, uh, yeah, so... And my own experience with this involved way back in the day, in the distant, distant past of 2012, I had some friends who actually had their own mad science lab. They'd, uh, they just rented this apartment, got themselves set up, and had more or less built a server farm there. And in between the days of helping them set it out, we were streaming this, and uh, I was watching the first few episodes this in sub. It had kind of... Uh, part of uh, the internet kind of died for a while and we had to do some stuff it was messing with the bandwidth on the server so we had to abandon that for something we had on DVD instead but during that time I was introduced to it was intrigued but not taken with it until the summer of 2014 when in between looking for a job I was searching on the internet uh, on the internet on the uh, in the DVD rack of a local anime store, and I saw Steinsgate staring back at me with a smiling face, 
and I tried it out and marathoned the whole thing within uh, within a six-day period. And within that six-day period, I had to rewatch it many times to make sure I could survive the dangers that it had to and learn its mysteries. And yeah, it was a fun time. Uh, I watched in its completion, alternating between dub and sub, but that was that. But... We cannot simply be caught up looking to the past. We must investigate the future. And so we must begin by giving our thoughts on the two, first two pair of characters. Faris Nyan Nyan is a cat girl made by day with something more working beneath her canny, uh, canny brain. Um, that's a, uh, weren't we going to do director, scriptwriter, uh, Sorry if you had your own, like... No, that's right. Voice. That's absolutely right. I didn't highlight those names, dang nabbit. Ah, D-mail to the past, go! So we must begin by talking about our ADR director and scriptwriters. The ADR director from this was the legendary Colleen Clinkenbeard, with script writings by J. Michael Tatum and Patrick Seitz. Folks, what are your thoughts on these delightful people and their take on this material? Um... I, I guess I'll go real quick. Um, okay, so Colleen Clinkenbeard has a pretty reliable track record as a director at this point, and um, sure enough, the show is very strong on that front. Um, given that we spent a lot of time hanging around the same group of characters, it was really important that they all sounded both good and also very distinct from one another. And um, Colleen manages to make things work on both fronts, and you can really tell that, you know, that extra little bit of effort was put in because uh, this was a very popular show in its heyday, and it still kind of is. So I imagine they really wanted to get that right. And uh, that would be my Chinese words. I'm probably going to have to do this all over again. Uh -huh. mm. um, someone else could go in the meantime, I guess. Alright. Uh, Roots, what say you? Yeah, um... This this was actually one of the first exposures I had. Like, 2012 me was just starting to figure out about ADR staff and how a different scriptwriter and director might make subtle changes to a dub script. And in general, a dub. So, this was the first time I really consciously was exposed to a Colin Klinkenbeer dub. And I can, mm. I can see why she's later on picked up some of the more prominent Funimation dubs in terms of their history, like Dimension W, My Hero Academia, and all that. Yes. Like, she really has a thing for, like... One of the things I really look for in um, mm. in a dub, it isn't just the, the main character performances, it's the sort of the stuff in the background. Yes. Like... Snap, Banner, Walla, all that. And, mm -hmm. like, it, the dialogue really had a lot of punch to it, which I, I really appreciated. And, like, timing, the comedic timing was great. There, the dramatic scenes were really good. And, um, so I gotta say, in terms of the script writing, um... I know there was a lot of complaints about sort of the the memification of the of the dub scripts by um, mm -hmm. by Tatum and Patrick Seitz, but it's actually kind of interesting 
watching the show now. Which is one of the reasons I'm really glad I'm on this episode to talk about it, because, well, like, the dub is dated. Like, really, mm -hmm. really dated. And watching it now in 2018, as opposed to 2012 when it was first coming out, and I, like I said, I watched, like, an episode or two, the scripts kind of annoyed me, so I walked away from it for six years. But coming back to it, it almost feels like it was dated intentionally. Hmm. Rooted in its time, you could say. Right. Like, it, it was a really fascinating watch, and I... And especially now hearing that, like, J. Michael Tatum had anxiety attacks writing the script for this dub. Because it, it was just, like, all over the place, emotionally weighty and all that. Like, mm. I have a newfound respect for yes. how this was all put together. So, huge props to Colin Clink and Beard, J. Michael Tatum, and Patrick Seitz. Which, by the way, also, Patrick Seitz is, like, his vernacular is just godlike. Because, <laughs> yes. like, his background is an English teacher. So, like, he weaves the English language like a tapestry. It's beautiful. And You can, you can hear them and you playing can, with it. Yeah, you can also kind of tell the... Presumably, it sounds like you could tell the difference between, like, the stuff Tatum wrote and the stuff Patrick Seitz wrote. And it blends really well. They complement each other well, yes. Yeah, with this, and I think that was also the case with Garo the Animation. So, like, a lot of mm. respect for everybody. Kudos. Um, I'm ready to pass it on. Finally... Lack. Uh, what okay. was your exposure? Yeah, um, kind of playing off of that idea, uh, I actually, yeah, really like how dated kind of the dialogue is and how super, like, leet and meme it is in the way that it actually makes it kind of a time capsule because one thing to consider is this show is heavily rooted in the fact that it is set in 2010. That is almost oh, one yes. of the core principles of the show and how they kind of weave around that time period. So... It genuinely makes sense that a kind of turn-of-the-century, like, set anime would have mm -hmm. a lot of references to the previous decade, especially considering this is a time travel show. Yes. With that being said, some of the references are more subtle than others. It's really interesting. Like, some are just kind of, like, really, like, uh, apparent. Like the one, like, like the when she says, you're such a Wesley. Like, that. that's so... <laughs> Although, to be fair, that's not really a reference to internet culture so much. But, um, at the same time, it, it it's counterbalanced with the fact that there are a lot of references that you really gotta pay attention to, or you're gonna miss super easily. And I kinda have to, like, give them that, um, I have to, like, hand it to them in that capacity. And at the same time, too, this is, this is a show that is heavily influenced by otaku culture. And a lot of that stuff doesn't translate so well over in English. So, otaku culture in English-speaking cultures is going to be kind of different. So, yeah, there should be a lot of, like, meme references and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, 
Do I feel like it was a little over the top sometimes? Yeah, maybe to some capacity, but at the same time, I think the high energy of the show and the fact that they keep moving forward, <laughs> it doesn't get in the way of what the show is actually about. So, no. yeah. I guess that's kind of my thoughts. So Yes. My own take on this echoes this. Uh, Colleen Clinkenbeard has uh, just impeccable impeccable directing chops uh how some of the dialogue was layered where we would have a main conversation up front and then some background some characters are joking and bantering we get the main information in the front in the background it's not super vital but uh the overlace interlacing between the two as was done i believe in the japanese gives it a a sense of events unfolding in real time and that we as the listener can't have to pay attention to both to try and puzzle out the mysteries of what is going on with the d-mails and who is sending the messages back in time or how we can find our points of divergence and change that it gives the characters an immediate sense of place within their city i was looking on the blu-ray menu for this and they were showing some of the uh, the maps of akihabara and just listening to some of the dialogue between side characters, uh, we do get very much a sense of what this district is about. And Colleen really plays that out so that it almost feels like uh, the setting is its own character in one of those subtle ways. As for the adaptation, yeah, Tatum and Sites really, <laughs> really are having fun with this one. Uh, it does have that uh, characteristic self-referentialness but as we've mentioned here, the show takes place in 2010. It is very much rooted in a place and time that would be relevant to a viewer who was familiar to it. And as it was being aired, of course, tying that in would make uh, a whole lot of sense. Uh, talking about the, uh, the John Titor mythology or John Teeter mythology, it's absolutely something that could only have existed within that span between 2000 and 2010. The internet was really hitting its stride as mainstream social media had populated to, uh, to from this more cloistered or secluded thing to something everyone had in their homes, on their phones, and all around. And so, given, as you, you say, that this was marketed towards... This is an otaku show for otaku by otaku when you look at the visual novel source material. It only makes sense that... Uh, it would be laced with internet memes, and there's a lot that gets lost in translation. 2chan isn't the same as Reddit, but they, um, they being Sites and Tatum, uh, worked their magic. And it's dated, but it's dated in the way go uh, good fiction uh, communicates that sense of place. And uh, Working with the material they did made that an absolutely incredible thing. I've I've got nothing but goodness to say. But to uh, what's this? to put it another Sorry. way, uh, just before we move on, if you wanted to show someone what culture was like in 2010, you would show them Steins Gate. So yes, yeah, yes, indeed. But what's this? My cell phone's buzzing, and I've got a message from. A future version of myself saying we have to move on. Um, oh my word! I so, technically didn't finish. Oh yeah, Jet. Oh, Jet needed to redo his. So yeah. stop! Stop the machine! Stop the machine! Yeah. 
No, no, it's too late. Ah. And we'll be good to go. Okay, okay, yeah, again, again, I'm very sorry for that, but I have my food. I'm jumping ahead. Shouldn't be bleeping anymore. Okay, um, so real quick, um, so Colleen Klingenbeard has a pretty reliable track record as a director at this point, and um, sure enough, this show was very strong on that front. Uh, given that we spent a lot of time hanging around the same group of characters, it was really important that they all sounded. Uh, both good and also very distinct from one another, and um, Colleen manages to make things work on both fronts, and you can really tell that that extra little bit of effort was put in, because this was a very popular show in its heyday, and it still kind of is, so I imagine it was something they really wanted to get right, and they definitely did. Um, as far as the script, uh, well, you know, I'll spare the host feel on how I feel about J. Michael Tatum as a scriptwriter, because I, li uh, because I literally just did that like an episode of your own skip beat so i kind of don't feel like doing that again um however i however uh, just real quick he doesn't have certain sensibilities in the way he writes adaptive scripts uh, one of the biggest being his love for you know inserting pop culture references and, uh, and a lot of the other things he's uh, he's been on that's kind of been a little bit distracting uh but given as everyone else has said this show leads very heavily on nerd culture to begin with and the Japanese version also has quite a few references inserted. Uh, this is probably the perfect thing for him to work on. Uh, since nothing... Okay, since none of that feels particularly out of place here on that. And um, all of it really works pretty well. And I uh, actually did get a few chuckles out of some of the references. Like the Wesley one uh, was pretty funny to me. <laughs> um, that said, I do, like, I do have like a few... Like a little bit of issue with the dialogue. Specifically how like... So a couple of the characters speak, uh, but I'll get into that later. Um, as a mm. whole, though, I do think it captures the spirit of the material pretty well, if not perfectly accurate, and if nothing else, I definitely gotta give it that. And uh, like someone else was saying, I do think it kind of captures the essence of 2010 pretty well. So, yeah, direction is great. Uh, script, I have like a couple of nitpicks, but it's pretty fine for the most part, so yeah, good stuff. Excellent. Well, now that we've established that indeed we do have a script that works, why don't we start exploring some of these characters? Starting with uh, Theris Nyanyan, a cat girl made of a dubious of a of a canny brain who is more than she seems, and Moe Kakiryu, the silent girl with much more going on behind her shining finger text messages. How about you, Roots? What were your thoughts on this character? Yeah, and Jessica Kavanaugh's performance with this. I mean, truth be told, there there isn't a lot to Jessica Kavanaugh's performance because, like, the character of Moeka is pretty quiet through most of the show. But um, mm -hmm. like, I I gotta give props to the um to later on in the series when um uh when Okabe is basically confronting her to try and change whatever the d-mail was that she sent out mm -hmm. and when he gets uh when he gets her phone off of her and shuts her into her apartment and like when she has to go from dead quiet for most of the show to to screaming give me back give me back oh yeah at the top of her uh at the top of her lungs through an apartment door and like that was genuinely creepy yeah, that was terrifying. And 
in a similar vein, while Jade Saxon played the character of Ferris overall pretty cutesy, like, her standout performance is also the episode where Okabe has to change around her, um, her, um, the, the text message she's, she sent out in the past. I'm sorry, mm. Dino. Dino. Yes. But, um, I gotta say, I'm, I'm also gonna bring this up with a later character. The show kind of screws them over. Yes. Like, really bad. Everybody gets a little screwed over in this series, I mean, let's be honest. True. And, yeah. like, they're not, they don't even, mm. other than Ferris, like, another character gets it even worse, but, oh. like, yeah. I, I really kind of didn't particularly like, I, I started really not liking Okabe as a character, when he yeah. basically had to convince Ferris to sacrifice her father in order to reset the timeline. Is it, is it, yeah, yeah, like, that's, yeah, I mean, I suppose we might as well just, just get this out of the way now, like, a lot of the plot is really just kind of tailor-made to Okabe's convenience, and um, it gets a little uncomfortable in some respects. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a bit. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that in just a sec, but... Yeah. The show screws over characters, but there's a reason between screwing over because events are happening, or screwing over because the writers want to add as much cruelty as possible to this, or at least aren't thinking about any of the repercussions of what they're writing. And Right. Yeah. But I'll, I'll have a, a little more of that in a future segment. But um, overall, mm. I really like both of the performances here. Like, they... Mm. Uh, Moeka was just the right amount of, like, shrinking Violet and then absolute psycho when she needed to be. And then, you know, Ferris was cutesy with a little bit more of a, like, a little bit more of a, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like, there was a bit more of an underlying intelligence to her character that I think Jade Saxon brought out really well. So I will pass it on to the next person. Okay. Which right. is me. Okay. It is me, right? Oh, well, I was going to go, but if you want to go first. I was going to say, wouldn't it be wiser to... All right, next. Let's move on to Jet. Jet, what were your thoughts on these two characters of Jade Saxton's Ferris and Jessica Kavanaugh's Moika? Um, so I don't have a whole ton of sandies who either... Uh, like Ruth was saying, Jessica Kavanaugh doesn't really have to speak much. Uh, but she does, I mean, but she does kind of get the whole um, social anxiety thing across pretty well. You can kind of, uh, you can definitely tell the character doesn't really like speaking much, and she, and she handles that very well. And I say, I mean, but then of course, you know, when we start to see more Morka's true nature, uh, she handles that really well too, when, uh, when she, when we get that whole thing where uh, Morka <laughs> and the rounders, I guess, first, like, raid the lab and whatnot. Um, there's, a, there's like, an immediate difference in tone, and she sounds, like, very cold and emotionalized, and I thought that was, like, pretty neat. And, so, and yeah. then, of course, when we... And then, of course, where we get to that whole thing where Okame has to do her D-mail and she goes, oh, cuckoo for Coca Puffs, Jessica Kavanaugh really sells that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and, like, and that was really terrifying. Uh, far as Jane Saxon's Ferris goes, I mean, well, I like Jane Saxon in just about anything, so I liked her pretty well here. 
Uh, she definitely, uh, she definitely made the characters sound very cutesy, but also, uh, you know, with, you know, with a little bit of sass or just to, you know, make her not sound too much like a typical boy girl. As mm. a, and uh, like, as a, and uh, she gave, she gave the character enough attitude to stand out a little bit, so I like that. And um, I mean, and uh, while her old arc, as Ruth was saying, is kind of a little uh, questionable. As a, uh, she uh, she definitely play she definitely handled all that well enough, and you can uh, you definitely feel the emotion of her performance when she uh, when she confessed what happened to her father, and um, and she definitely sold that for me. So yeah, I like these two performances; they were very good. Mm-hmm. And Lack, what what about you? What were your thoughts? I think something to consider with Moika is the fact that it's it's interesting. Jessica Kavanaugh's performance was very timid and I think that's that is definitely a part of the character because if you listen to the way Jessica Kavanaugh talks as Mocha she she has this kind of you know stuttering to her performance which I, I really think benefited to the character very well because in spite of the fact that Mocha is not all that important to the plot she is important in in little bits but I think it adds to the fact that she is supposed to be kind of a wallflower because that's kind of the point. If uh, if she was as forefront as the rest of the cast, e- even as much as Ferris to some capacity, her her arc would not nearly be as interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the scene she has with Okabe near the end wouldn't be as impactful because no. you've got a woman here who is an addict. Like, in spite of the fact that she is a very competent agent for, you know, for the uh, organization that she's working for, she is an addict to her phone. It mm-hmm. is her lifeblood to her. And you really get that with uh, with Jessica Kavanaugh's performance. Uh, with Ferris, Ferris is just fun. I like Ferris. Uh, and, you know, the, it, it is, she does have her sad scenes, and Jade Saxon did them very well. Uh, you know, she's really good at at uh, those kind of scenes. Uh, and I think it's a kind of a te- testament to how, like, Ferris is kind of your kind of typical character for anime, where she's this bubbly, you know, uh, happy type girl, but at the same time, there's a lot more to her character, and I think it's it's really fun to see that uh, with, uh, with Jade's performance. Uh, especially in the scenes where she's forced to make decisions... And Okabe is basically forcing this on her, and she really had no idea what was going on. But I, I love the scenes where she's messing with Okabe. I-, I-, I think those are some of the fun ones when she's basically teasing him. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what I have to say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my own takes on her uh, with Moika. Yes, they're listening to the Japanese performance there. That her very simple monosyllabic answers suit that archetype well, but uh, in Jessica Kavanaugh's performance, there's much more of a, as you say, that stutter, that hesitance there, as though she's afraid uh, if she speaks too loud, she might draw unwanted attention. There's a real timidity there that uh, belies how tightly wound that character is. When... uh, around episode 11 when uh, she cuts loose a little bit and starts enacting, uh, how shall we say, the less charitable side of CERN and the organization she works for, 
it becomes, uh, yeah, that mechanical, the trained agent performing her role until finally those devastating revelations around episode 22 when, 21, when she, we get into her backstory and figure out what she's been doing in the apartment all this time and the nature of her social anxiety and addiction rears its ugly head where she is, uh, where she is traumatized and wild and very, very unpredictable. And uh, being able to handle that range for for a viewer, it's dramatic to see. But she's not uh, because the character appears so little until those times when she does make the plot engine move forward. It's much more. Um, it must have been quite a fun afternoon in the booth, to say the least, to give some of this. And as for Jade Saxton with Ferris, uh, yeah, Ferris was definitely one of my favorite characters. She might not be the most uh, intelligent in terms of understanding the physics, but she understands people so, so well. And uh, I liked how you could notice very much she would slide between her performance as the Nyan Nyan Cat Girl and her interactions with the characters just as a person. And how she could slide between being uh, the performative role of herself as the head of the maid cafe, and then her down-to-earth self as the as the person who has a relationship with uh, our future science adventurers and her father, and all of those uh, complex little dynamics, which show her as so exceedingly aware of everyone around her and also very comfortable in her life and not fully recognizing the dangerous spiraling nature of the conspiracy that surrounds her. But yeah, I like both performances. I wish both of these characters had got more to do. This almost made me wonder either to check out the movie that came out thereafter. I've yet to see it. Or perhaps even an OVA that might go into their routes in the visual novel. As I understand, there is more going on than what we've seen here. But that's a story. Yeah, I mean that's that's just how all like anime adaptations of like visual novels go. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean and, like there are three adaptations of Fate Stain I hate going right now. Right. So. <laughs> Yes, and what we had was excellent here, and I'm not bemoaning that. It's more the nature of the beat, the anime and oh, the yeah, beast yeah, that yeah, we had. Yeah. That's, that kind of made sure we couldn't see all of that. It's more, I'm speaking of wish fulfillment here. From what we saw and what we got, I have nothing but positivity towards this. But I'm getting a... <coughs> ah! I just had a... Sorry, I just came in from a future timeline here, and we now have to talk about Ruka Ureshibara, the shrine maiden from uh, the local Shinto shrine, who whose friendship had uh, also harbors a uh, a connection to the to the fated IBN Selectric Five One Zero Zero, which around which our heroes can solve the world line and. Starting with you, Roots, I think you've got some things you really want to say about this, because this, this character... I'm just going to sit back for this part, mostly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, boy. Roots. Oh, boy. Take her away. 
Alright, so I, I should preface this on the fact that I really had no problems with Lindsay Seidel's performance. It's the show where my problems with Ruka come to light. Because, man, like, yeah, man. All right, so in order to, to preface this, um, it's not exactly implied. I, okay, hold on, let me, let me start this over. Sure, sure. Um, it's not explicitly stated what is, um, what Ruka's background is. It's, it's implied that they're either trans or, or intersex. And the entire plot line around Ruka is that they send a D-note to their mo to their mother about like some some old wives' tale about how you can manipulate the gender of a child. Cause um at this like at at the start of the show, Ruka is biologically male. Or at least implied to be. And mm -hmm. then later on in the series, after after that the the D note they send, um, the character is implied to be either biologically female or you know assigned female at birth. Mm -hmm. I I can't recall if it was ever explicitly stated what what the entire backstory of that is, but. What Okabe has to do in order to reset the timeline is essentially undo that D-note that Ruka sent. Which means Ruka wanted to be female. Mm-hmm. And by undoing this message, it forces Ruka to be male. And that's just... Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and even... And even then, they have a... You're... Like, Okabe has one of those... You are you moments. But it's also kind of undercut with the fact that... Oh yeah, you are you. But I need to be some... I need you to be something you don't necessarily want to be... In order to fix problems I made. Like, it's just kind of a gross storyline to me. Yeah. Jet, I okay. take it you're not alone in this? You're okay. not... Okay. Uh, not alone in this? Alright, um, so that's not really how I feel about the performance, because that I liked a lot. Um, Lindsay Seidel is pretty experienced at playing androgynous characters. Okay, and uh, Ruka obviously plays the those strings pretty well, for better or worse. And uh, she managed to make Ruka sound uh, very feminine, but with just the right tone of voice that I can also uh, buy into uh, Ruka being biologically male. Um, as I, uh, so I suppose if I, I mean, I suppose if I had to nitpick anything about the performance is that she, I guess, was said I could have made the two versions of Ruka sound a little different from each other since she kind of played them the same as far as I can tell. Uh, but that might have also led to its own problem, so maybe it's good she didn't mm -hmm. do that. Um, so, yeah. as for the character, well, I'm not gonna lie, I hated Ruka's mini-arc, like, I actually hated it to the point where I almost swore at my screen about it. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. 
Okay, so quote-unquote trap characters are a pretty tired archetype in anime at this point, as is. Mm. And uh, and uh, they obviously carry uh, pretty dangerous connotations for trans people, but uh, I, I'm probably not the person to be talking about that. Okay, um, so anyway, otaku base stuff tends to uh, handle that sort of thing pretty poorly. And uh, there are already some big warning signs when Ruka apparently wanted to rewrite the world line to become a woman. Um, now, here's the mm. thing. If it were done in the context that uh, that Ruka, like, generally feels that um, they're a woman, I could kind of let that go. Uh, I could kind of let that go, you know, even if rewriting history doesn't have a sex change, is kind of suspect. Uh, but then it's essentially revealed that Ruka really only wanted to become a woman because she thought it was the only way Okabe would want her, which is a uh, very, very icky. And then on top of that, uh, when Ruka has to give up being a woman, uh, they also say uh, they also say that uh, Ruka essentially has their choice but to bury uh, their feelings for Okabe because you know they're both guys. And. Uh, <laughs> Okay, and uh, okay, and well, to Okami's credit, he does at least slightly disagree with that idea. Uh, the story has Ruka go through it anyway because plot. And uh, <laughs> okay, can I interject and, uh, for a sec? Because there's one little little thing I forgot to mention. Go ahead. Like Ruka's gender is only tangentially connected to the the IBM fifty one hundred, the the coveted. Mm -hmm. MacGuffin of the series like the reason it's not in the shrine is because Ruka accidentally knocks it over and breaks <laughs> it like their gender had nothing to do with why the why this computer isn't where they thought it would be so yeah like yeah Okabe could have easily just sent a, a D note to to Ruka's mother that basically said, "Hey, make sure this computer isn't somewhere where it can be knocked over and broken." Like that would have been an easier fix for this. That wouldn't have involved like a gross plot line. Uh, and that that's the end of my rant. Okay. Um. Yeah. So yeah. Um. As, okay. So uh, finishing up. Finishing this up. I mean, I suppose in quote-unquote fairness, this only... I mean, this whole thing only compromises about two episodes worth of plot. And it, like, it didn't completely ruin the entire show for me, but uh, it is easily the worst part of it, and that whole thing just aged really, really terribly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm done. Uh, lack? <laughs> lack! Uh, you two okay. wish to join on this... Well, discussion. I think one of the one of the highlights of uh, uh, of Lindy Sedell's performance is just how meek Ruka came across, which I think is one of the selling points of understanding Ruka's uh, sense of sense of not, can't figure out what kind of identity Ruka wants to have. Mm -hmm. I think for the character, it, it works, and I, I think a lot of. A lot of the idea of Ruka being kind of the same, whether Ruka is male or female, it, well, well, okay, look at how Ruka basically said that she wanted to be male, mm -hmm. or, or she wanted to be female, sorry. She thought she was supposed to be born a female, and I think the fact that, that Lindsay did not change the voice that much is part of the mm -hmm. point, because yeah. of the fact... Again, yeah, I, I understand the complaint about that it came from Ruka wanting to 
simply change to be a girl so that uh, Okabe would like her. That that's kind of that is dumb. I, I I get what you're saying there, but at the same time, had they not done that, it would have made sense for why Ruka basically sounds the same no matter what the gender. Mm. So that didn't bug me. As a matter of fact, I think that was actually a really good choice. Uh, when I when I first w- started the episodes, I was like, "Wow, Ruka really sounds like a girl." If if Ruka's supposed to be a guy, and then I realized, okay, this this is Ruka's arc, and it made sense to me why Lindsay basically didn't change the voice, regardless mm-hmm. of regardless of gender. So. Yeah. That's basically the most important thing I want to say about this because I feel like you guys have basically covered everything else. Yeah, uh, like yeah. the performance was great. I yeah, like it's, I need it's to... tragic. It's effective. It really hits all the bases it needs to. So yeah, like it may legit be one of my favorite performances of the show. It's just the character arc that I have a little bit of problems with. Yeah, I. I don't... <laughs> that sums up some of my feelings. I have little to add. Ruka is a very confused character, so I I can almost buy the idea of Ruka wanting to be a girl, just to have Okabe like... What? um, what? Oh. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I've... I am... I have to give it to Lindsay Seidel for giving such a good performance. The timidity was very much uh, what I noticed about this. This character... Right away, when we got the line, and the dude. That one line is like, oh god, we're actually doing this. A character written because otaku have certain fetishes, and this will make the visual novel sell better. Ugh. Uh, Lindsay Seidel's performance uh, as both genders of Ruka was fantastic. Uh, I found it... I It fit for the ambiguity of have we changed this time stream or not? Because that was one of the uh, earliest D-mails, was it not? They were experimenting with to see whether or not this actually whether this actually worked. But yeah, everything about Ruka was just so grossly handled. I, I commend Lindsay Seidel for being able to make this as affecting as possible. But I, I actually did have to stop watching this for for about a day. Just like I was so hopping mad at this. But uh, yeah, it's, it was a thing. It's over. But fortunately, we do not have to wallow in this sort of ugliness. For there are more characters to discuss. We have both uh, from the Shinto Shrine to the dingy TV shop. We have Shirami Lei as Suzeha Amane as the part-time warrior of uh, the the TV shop of Yugo Bron Tenoji and his junk shop, voiced by the inimitable Christopher Sabat. Roots, please take it away on these two. What were your thoughts? Yeah. Um. Uh, one one sec. Okay. Um. Like, I gotta say, Suzuha was one of my favorite characters of the show. Like, of of everybody, despite the kind of bad hand she got played at 
the end of her first arc. Which, um, I, I really have to say that the revelation of her father to her was one of my favorite moments of, of her performance. And also, like, the letter what, that she sends um, Okabe to admit that she failed in obtaining the IBM computer. Like, I, I feel like that gets the two notes of the character down perfectly. Uh, Cheremy Lee is just delightful here. Because she has a she has a really good energy to her, and it, it's really palpable. And, um, Chris Sabat, like, he steals the show whenever he shows up. Like, just to beat some sense into Okabe, it, it, it's really beautiful. And then, the whole thing after the revelation of the end of uh, Suzuha's initial arc... Where he's basically telling Okabe how how he knew her after the timeline fixed, and she ended up in nineteen seventy one. I want to say seventy. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's like either seventy one or seventy five. Like I that. thought it was seventy five, though there may have been an earlier world line. Yeah, when when she ends up in the seventies, and then she she meets a younger Brawn. And he's recounting everything to, to Okabe, basically twice, because hmm. her timeline resets twice. And, like, that that was just beautiful. And, like, I, I really have to give props to Chris Sabat's nuance with, with those. Compared to the scenes where he's basically yelling at Okabe to not be so loud in the upstairs apartment. Like, it, it was really nice. And I, I really like both performances. And I'll pass it on. Okay, um, so I'll start with Suzuha first. Um, so Jeremy, so Jeremy Lee is pretty well versed at playing sassy girls, and um, she really gives Suzuha a lot of energy. Uh, one thing that um, I kind of actually did like about the dub script in regards to her specifically is that um, it's kind of, I guess, a little bit subtle. But if you notice, she uses like a lot of outdated slang in the earlier episodes. Which I think kind of helps serve as a little bit of a hint as the fact that she's not really from that era. I mean, like, I'm not entirely sure how intentional that was since there is, like, a little outdated flag in some other instances for other characters. I mean, but I did think that was a nice touch regardless. Mm. Well, I mean, um, if you think about it, though, <laughs> she was intending to go back into the 70s and yeah, got it's a, it's knocked a, out of alignment. That's a, he's a, he's a, yeah, and a lot of her, yeah, and a lot of, like, the lines she said in the earlier episodes did kind of get that vibe, so... Like I'm not like again. I'm not totally sure how intentional that was, but if it was intentional, that was re that was really well done. I like that. Um, okay, um, so going back to Terry's performance, though, uh, while I liked her as fucking Suzuha, what really won me over was when we got to see um, you know all the actual stuff that Suzuha is dealing with, and um, she plays the serious out of the character really well. And uh, like Roots was saying, I especially like how she handled. Um, Suzuha's whole big breakdown over failing to get the IBM, since you could, you could really feel that sense of regret in her tone, and uh, it really helped me. It really helped us all be in that scene a lot, even if I did kind of think she got screwed over a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, as for Chris, as for Chris about his Mister Broad, well, I mean he was mostly there to be snarky and down to earth, but um, Chris Mister Broad sounded pretty likable regardless. 
Admittedly, got that very kind of tired and annoyed attitude, very down, since it constantly feels like he's just totally fed up with Okabe's nonsense. And, um, mm. again, as I, and like I was just saying, I didn't like that whole bit where he kind of reveals his relationship to Suzuha, and I thought that was really handled very well. Um, and I thought the whole setup to the reveal behind his true identity was also kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, but uh, looking back, the payoff was a little bit underwhelming there, plot-wise, since, to be honest, we never really get to learn that much about him before he just blows his own brains out. Like, I get the feeling the visual novel probably gave him a more in-depth backstory, but as uh, but as far as the anime goes, that whole bit was just kind of there to move the plot along. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as the performances go, I like them both. Yes. And Lack, your thoughts? Well, the cool thing about these two characters is they're played by actors I absolutely adore. Uh, in the case of Hugo, um, Chris Sabat is always the kind of guy you go to when you need just a stoic uh, big guy voice. Uh, he's always good for those kind of characters because he's always able to bring a little bit of nuance to the performances of that, which you could easily just lose in, in a less experienced actor. Um, there's not much to say um, on... Uh, I feel like for Hugo, aside from, you know, his death scene, uh, but aside from the fact that I, I just think Christopher Sabat is a great actor, and I think he was a great fit for Hugo. In the case of Jeremy Lee as uh, Suzuha, something I absolutely love about Jeremy Lee as an actress is her voice works so well for so many different kinds of ca characters. And it, it, it really is cool to see her play such unique types, because you can go from a character like a poor little rich girl like Lucy Hartphilia, and then you come to a much more like complex and has much more of a, a backstory that's that's crosswired like Suza, and mm. you know she plays the character like a tomboy, which I think really shows off like her her range as an actress. Maybe not so much of a range of her voice, but at least the range of her personality wise. Um. Suzuha is definitely one of the most interesting characters in the show. And a weight like that for a character, it's really nice to see Jeremy Lee be able to handle that really well because she is a great actress and she can handle really heavy characters like this. Um, so I think one of the best elements of Jeremy Lee's performance is, you know, you've got Sites and you've got Tatum giving her this, this kind of meme dialogue and she's just knocking it out of the park super fast and super, like, effectively in a way that it, it really doesn't come across as, like, punching the audience over the head with it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the best things about it. And then when her character starts to change, when you start to learn about her and the fact that she's from the future and she's actually John Teeter, uh, I think it's really cool how the character's personality kind of shifts. And I think Jeremy did a great job of, of like, really organically shifting the character's personality because you go from the facade of her just being a, a high-energy tomboy who for some reason doesn't like Kurusu and then you find out why she doesn't like Kurusu and where she comes from and this whole new character is basically created. So, yeah. Mm. That's pretty much my thought. Yes. I've, I'm going to follow up on Jeremy because that, she was one of the standout performances in the show in a show that is chock full of them. I found that that uh, there was a nice subtlety to her where um, the more dangerous side came out as um, you could almost sense it when the writers shifted from sights to Tatum and we went from the more conversational dialogue to some of the deeper exposition 
and thematically it felt well switching from the person who is just enjoying life and finding paradise in the 2010s to someone who has survived a dystopian hellscape and has had to become a fighter from a very young age in order to survive. And uh, yes, absolutely, her I failed note was absolutely heart-wrenching. But uh, yeah, that was... it. I actually got choked up at some point. That performance was incredible. Uh, that not to be not to, to speak any poorly though of Chris Sabat though as Hugo von Braun uh, Tenoji should be a uh, he almost feels like just a background character but like everyone in Steins Gate there's so much more underneath the surface and they're not who they say they are and uh, in his case the much uh, put upon landlord breaking way into this. Uh, this desperate agent of the organization trying to keep himself alive. It There was that brittle survivor's edge to him that felt uh, actually reminiscent of some soldiers I've known who have that... Uh, who have a gravelly, weighty presence when talking about the facts of the matter. Like, yep, that guy's dead now. We have to move on to this next task because that's... The way this business proceeds, you've outlived your usefulness, M4, bam. That was really, really... Um, it's easy when giving a performance like that to just make it... Uh, to just almost make it sound bored or uh, monotone. Instead, it, it was just matter of fact. And being able to oscillate between that then some of the moments of passion talking about his uh, daughter and then being able to then slide back into some of the lighter landlord yelling at the idiots upstairs or even those moments with Suzu Su Suzuha. I, uh, it's, it seemed like, uh, yeah, a what we've come to expect from Sabat. Excellent. But there's more, but there are more agents of field in this. We have both uh, moving on to these, the next couple, we have both Itaru Daru Hashida, the hacker who, or hack who helps drive the future gadget laboratories into the future with his engineering, and Mayori Shina with her Tutaru by Jackie Ross, but known in this world line as Ashley Birch. Pseudonyms are afoot. It seems like the organization is running deeper than we think. Please, Roots, lead us into these two. What did you think? Do, do, do. Like I, I um, I really gotta say the um, Jackie Ross as um, as Myri. Like I really like that she she plays her kind of childishly, but it mm -hmm. never seems like it, it. It never seemed to me like. She was not an intelligent character. Like, she was not played as, like, the lovable idiot. She is... Like, she has a personality and a weight all her own, and... She's bubbly and cheerful, but... Like, there, there is complexity under the surface, and... Mm -hmm. Like, I, I really like that, and... 
Like, the standout performance for her, to me, is, um... Oh, it's, um... Ooh, do-do-do. Let me, let me just look over my notes here for a sec. Um, it's, it's when Suzuha and, uh, Kurisu are, are sort of fighting, and she's, she's kind of getting into the middle of it, and basically giving the argument of, hey, I don't care if you guys get along, but please don't fight around me. Like, hmm. like, please at least try to make an effort to get to know each other, and, like, it was really nice and like and really sweet and I I really liked it and um, Tyson Reinhardt as Daru is like he he's a source of a lot of the the elite speak of the show and it, it never felt out of place he's a bit of a creeper and a perv but it it works for the character and like. There is a little bit of charm to him if you really stop and look. Like, he he generally seems like a good dude. And Tyson has a really good method of bringing out that sort of warmth to him. And I, I really liked it. So, I will pass it on. Jet. Okay, um... Okay, so I'll start with uh, Jackie Ross and Mayuri first. Um, okay, uh, so to be honest, Mayuri and Daru are like like, out of the entire cast, I mean, this is, like, an otaku-based show, so, of course, you know, there's, like, archetypes and whatnot. And, like, out of the entire cast, I gotta say, these two were kind of, like, the most archetypical to me, but, um, I mean, I didn't necessarily hate them for that. Uh, but, uh, anyway, going to get into Jackie Ross's performance as Mayuri, I... I mean, I liked it a lot. Uh, like Ruth was saying, uh, she, sounds, uh, she sounds very cutesy and bubbly and energetic, and... She uh, she handles that side of the character really well, but okay. Uh, but there's are there, but there are those moments where you can tell like she's a little bit more insightful than she lets on. Uh, like and, and she does have like a pretty solid awareness of what's happening, even if it's not always obvious. Um, I mean, like there's supposed to be that whole bit where she kind of pieces together that Suzuha and Daru are related, and mm -hmm. uh, like, no, and it's not even just like oh I have a feeling. It's like oh she like actually deduces it kind of logically, and it's a little bit surprising. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that whole bit was kind of neat. Um, okay, and uh, then going into Tyson Reinhardt is uh, Daru. Uh, it was very interesting uh, compared to this to the Japanese version uh, because uh, uh, because much like Megan, uh, it can be a little bit annoying when, well, uh, much like how Megan often says, it can be a little bit annoying when uh, overweight characters have a very typical fat person voice and... Um, Darwin the Japanese version has a very typical fat person voice, like like very <laughs> like very much how you would expect a fat pacey otaku to sound, and uh, it didn't it definitely didn't do a lot to endear me to the character in that version. Um, so I definitely like Tyson Reinhardt's Dar a lot more since it's like it sounds a little bit more like you would like how you would expect a character of that age to sound, and there's a, and there's definitely a lot more bass in his voice, and that certainly helped. Um. As a, I mean, of course, Daru kind of is, like, you know, a bit of a lewd, annoying nerd, so... I mean, so I can't say, like, the character was super enduring to me, but... I mean, but I never got a lot of laughs out of him, but he has, like, a little bit of charm in his own, like, weird way. Mm -hmm. like, and, like, and uh, yeah, I certainly didn't have any problems with the performances. I thought both of them did a backup job. Mm. Lack? 
How about you? Uh, okay. Well, I, I would say uh, I would say Ashley Birch's Mayuri is definitely one of the standouts. Um, it, it's it's interesting for her character because you you've got this sort of element of she's kind of as innocent as her portrayal is because it's very different from Suzuha because Suzuha is hiding a lot. Mayuri is really hiding anything. And I, I think, as far as Ashley Birch's performance went, I think it really... It, it's easy to make a character like this annoying, and that is exactly the opposite of what she did. She actually made Mayuri really compelling as a character, and you see her subtly grow throughout the episodes, and I think that was one of the best elements of the show, frankly. Um, with... With each episode, and you start to you start to understand that she is actually seeing a lot of the same stuff that Okabe is seeing, just not so clearly. And by the last episode, she basically knows exactly what's been happening. And I think that's really interesting. And I think it, the coolest part of that is, she, personality-wise, she doesn't really change. She's still the same Mary from the first episode, but she is smarter now. And I think it's really cool how Ashley Birch was able to convey that in the show. And I think that's one of the strongest parts of the performance. Uh, for Tyson Reinhardt as Daru, um, good performance. I mean, Daru somehow managed to be creepy and still not be unlikable. Because you kind of get this feeling that he's not really going to act on anything he says. And I, I, think, I think Tyson did a good job of portraying that. There's not much to to Daru. He doesn't really have an arc, honestly, except for when he finds out that he's Suzuha's father. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's the most significant part of for him for the show. And I think that's probably I think that's probably where Tyson shows the the most out of his performance for the character. Um, but besides that, there's really not that much his character goes through. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the time, he's just meant to be the the goofy pudgy guy. You know, and it's, you know, he's he's a barrel. That's why his name is Daru. So, it, it's... But at the same time, again, he could be a character that could be super annoying. But he never really came across as annoying. And, and, I, and I, it's, kind of, it's funny you bring that up because I feel like he's actually an interesting counterbalance to Okabe in that respect. Because it seems like Daru would be the more annoying of the two, but no, he's... But no, he's actually like a little bit more down to earth than Okabe is. Yeah, he's he's grounded. He he never comes across as over the top or or just out out. He he never overstays his welcome as a character. Brown. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that's all I have to say for them. Mm. Now, uh, actually, Ashley Birch or Jackie Ross, which identity is the real you? I wonder double agent uh i found her uh when i first saw it i thought oh boy it's going to be one of those characters who is so cutesy poo for the sake of being cutesy poo but um i found she had uh she got a good while her character didn't develop as i say or experience dramatic turns in terms of who she was uh she did have a broad range from being excitable to scared to even shout out loud angry all while keeping that same sweet timber in her voice uh i quite like that i found that uh 
the way she uh jackie made her confusion that some of the crazy super science stuff sound fairly natural the uh I also praise Colin Clinkenbeard for directing it so well because that sounded very much like you've walked into a room and two of the engineers are going off about fun things you too can do with that welding gap going into some of the micro abrasions or what have you. You have no idea what they're doing and then the normal person speaks up and says, well, have you thought about doing something like this? Uh, the ability to make the character oscillate between confusion and keen observation is great. And of course, the Chicky Chicky Tenders was uh, absolutely charming. And I went from dreading this character into uh, being glad whenever she showed up on screen because she, for some of the heaviness or uncomfortableness that came out of uh, some of the other character interactions, like Okabeta Ruka, or even some of uh, Daru's interactions with uh, with any of the girls, he did. Uh, she did a uh, delightful job. Moving on to Daru, I wasn't as fond of him. He reminded me of some folks I had known in the past who were kind of fun to be around, but who were a little bit more lecherous and didn't know when to rein it in. I found uh, Daru's relationship with Okabe was such that the high-octane intensity that is the madness of Okabe almost felt, uh, almost made him seem grounded by comparison. But the way he could, uh, Daru could deliver some of the snarky one-liners, and it felt more like a guy who just does have a dirty sense of humor at times helped. I, I found I ended up sort of warming to him, uh, but as was said, the character doesn't have a Aside from that one revelation about who his daughter is, he uh, he doesn't have a huge rate aside from, Whoa, dude, that's absolutely freaky, man. Uh, you know, he uh, works well with... Uh, hmm? uh, oh, no, I just want to break something up before we move on. Uh, because uh, uh, because something I actually kind of noticed about the show plot-wise, like, did they ever actually explain how Daru joined the lab? Because you see how everyone else joins, but he's just kind of there. Yeah, and like, and like, and it's weird because they say that it was originally just Okabe by Yuri, but at some point Daru just shows up, and you never know how he showed up. Like, I think it was mentioned like high school or college level. Like, he he knew it, Okabe. Uh, it, yeah, because uh, again, yeah, because I mean, it's not it's not really brought up in the plot, but they are all college students technically. It, it's yeah. it's funny you mention they know each other, but it, it's funny you mention mm. that because I had no idea how old Okabe was. And, and then I looked at Oh, no, Okabe's in college. No, 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 that, that's what I mean. I looked up and I was like, he's supposed to be 18? What? But, yeah. <laughs> the facial hair, man. It's all yeah. about the unkempt facial hair. Yeah. I I like the, uh, Tyson Reinhardt's performance as Daru. He does add... Uh, he does give a certain casual flippance to him that I found worked really well, particularly when the reactions about getting a coal. It's like, nice thing for an ice cold hola, man. It it felt very... Uh, working with the dialogue he had, he did it well, but he is sort of outshone by some of the other more bombastic or high-energy high characters around here. But yeah. I... 
again, both these both these actors did a fine job, and I have nothing to uh, truly say further about that other than good job, folks. But we near the end of our mystery tour. We're getting to the bottom of this mystery as now we discuss Kirisu Masike, the scientist from from. America, who has more going on beneath the surface, and the mad scientist himself, the the absolute king of the laboratory, Hohoin Kyoma, or Rintaro Okabe, as he is actually known. Roots, what did you think of these two? Okay, starting off with uh, Trina Nishimura as Kurisu, um... Like, I, I really liked her performance. Um, she added a she had a bit of snark that was, that like Daru was really, really needed to round out the, um, the sort of more energetic characters like Mayuri and Okabe. And, um, but what I really liked about her character, it, it was, it was really more the little moments. Like, um, like every time Okabe manages to convince her that, oh yeah, like, I, I've seen, you know, these future timelines and blah 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 happens. Like, the, the amount of hoops he has to jump through in order to get her to be convinced that he actually saw events transpire. Like, I, I thought that was legitimately funny. <coughs> she has, like, air and pep to her and... And then when she needs to, she can she can bring the tone down and be more dramatic and like I I really like her performance as as Krisu. Now, J. Michael Tatum as Okabe on I I won't say on the other hand because I like Okabe is a hard character to like at the very least in this incarnation of Steins Gate. I can't vouch for Zero because I haven't actually started that yet, but, um, like, Okabe's a really, really difficult character to like. Yeah. Like, when you, when all of these, um, undoing the, the D-notes plot lines start happening. Oh, yeah. Like, and he has to do really shitty things to people who don't deserve it. In order to yep. basically stop Mayuri from dying, and then even then, like he just causes other catastrophes when he manages to pull that off. Yeah, like the the cycle never ends, and like I mean the the show is one big whole big what has science done plot. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. What has science done? But um. Like, I really like how he's sort of the, the jokey, peppy, charismatic Hohoin Kiyoma, the mad scientist of Akihabara in the beginning of the show. And then, like, <coughs> and then after Mayuri dies the first time and he has to go back in time and witness this over and over again and figure out clues each time that'll help prolong her life and... Like, the standout performance for him, I would say, is, like, those episodes in between the first time Mayori dies and when he starts figuring out how to, um, how to significantly change the world line. 
Mm. Like, where he's slowly going mad, he's... He's, like, not in a very good place. No. Like, he is just depressed, beridden with... Like, it's... I can't imagine what ha what somebody who witnesses somebody die over and over and over and over and over again, what oh, that man. does to a person. Uh, yeah, uh, what we do is kind of interesting about that, but, I mean, I know we don't normally bring this sort of thing up, but, um, okay, uh, but just in regards to, like, the opening theme song in particular, like, if you pay attention to the lyrics, it really kind of conveys that sense of what Okami goes to for those couple of episodes, like, really well. Yeah, mm -hmm. like, I, that that's actually, I'm really glad you brought that up, Jack, because, um, like, I had, I wasn't really paying attention to, to the opening credits. I, I watched it a couple of times back before I really started watching the show, and I really liked the visuals, so I didn't think, oh, I should, I should see this. And I was watching it on Verve, and, like, to my surprise, they're actually starting to fix the, uh, the subtitling issues with dubbed episodes that kind of plagued the service. And Steins Gate happened to be one of the shows that got fixed, and I actually saw the lyrics to the opening credits. And it was actually kind of cool, because they were directly referencing the plot to the show. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Um, like, I... Okabe is a really hard... Like I said, Okabe is a really, really hard character to like, but J. Michael Tatum did a really good job portraying the character. Mm. Like... Yes. That... I cannot imagine how much strain that put on him. And... That is one of those... Like, holy shit, do you... Like... I... I... Stepping out of watching Steins Gate, I'm just thinking, like, holy shit, Tatum, do you need a hug? Like, mm -hmm. I, I really hope after, like, after he was done recording the, the later episodes, he got a hug. Because that, like, that's yeah. rough stuff. And I'm, I'm really glad that his performance was able to convey the, the emotions that needed to be conveyed. And I will pass it on because I have been speaking for way too long. Okay. Um, okay. So of course I'll start with Karisu, uh, probably because she was actually my favorite character in the entire show, and uh, that's mostly doing part <coughs> two. And it's mostly doing part two. Trina Nishimura's excellent performance. Um, she's always been one of my favorite actresses at Funimation, and it's mainly because she's really good at getting the most out of whatever kind of character she's playing. Uh, whether it's, like, that mix of coldness and passion that defines Mikasa from Attack on Titan, or, or you know, playing someone more archetypal, archetypical like the nutty soccer girl Akko from Any Thought There Was Ever a Girl Online. And yes, I'm very mm. sorry I had to bring that show up. I'm sorry, Roots. Um, <laughs> uh, so, anyway, she's really good. Uh, she really brings whatever she can out of these kinds of characters to make them work. And, um, Kurisu, of course, is, you know, meant to be a tsundere through and through, and, um, while Trinity Samura certainly does play up the tsundere side of her very well, uh, she gets a lot of humanity to Kurisu, and it makes the character generally likable in a way I wasn't really expecting. And, um, she also does an equally great job of making Kurisu feel believable as someone who's very interested in science, 
And, like, there's this really strong sense of genuine curiosity in her tone of voice. And especially during, like, all those instances where time travel is being discussed, like, when they're going over theories and stuff, or, you know, whatever, Okabe depth the world a lot, he asks to explain to her what's going on. Uh, but, if, uh, and of course, you know, when it's time for the character to be emotional, she plays that very well, too. And I especially felt for her when she revealed all that stuff about her father, and I mean, I know we're not talking about her father, but boy, howdy, that guy is a piece of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, whether she was talking about her father or uh, during that whole bit where she confesses her feelings to Okabe, um, Trinity Sumira handled all that really well. Uh, my sole complaint has less to do with her and more to do with some of her dialogues and some... I noticed that for some reason, like, whenever she talks to, like, Mayuri specifically, uh, she has, like, this weird tendency to call her, like, to call her by, like, weird pet names, like, Sweetie or Baby Doll. And at first I thought, okay, maybe that's just J. Michael Tatum's way of getting around, like, honorifics or something. Uh, but when I went back to check the subs really quickly, Karisu just called Mayuri by name in the sub, so... Uh, hmm. it, uh, so it was really weird that popped up so much, and, um... Since neither of those pet names kind of sound like anything an actual teenager would really refer to their friend as, it actually kind of distracted me a little bit on occasion. Mm. Um, but outside of that nitpick, Kuna uh, Nishimura was excellent, and while Mikasa is so probably my favorite performance, performance of hers, uh, she played Kiritu so well that this actually comes in a very close second for me. And um, as for J. Michael Tatum... Uh, like Roots, to be honest, I didn't really care all that much for Okame in the beginning. Uh, like, his old chuny sick is honestly kind of obnoxious. And especially the way he talks down Kurisu in particular for most of the show's first half didn't really do a whole lot to make him endearing to me. Uh, to J. Michael Tatum's credit, though, he plays up that obnoxious side very well. And uh, you can really tell he was getting into Okame's delusions, and so much so that you can just tell he was having a lot of fun behind the booth with it. Uh, but of course, when we get to the second half of the show, and Okabe has to, you know, gradually lose that whole cocky attitude in the face of constantly failing over and over again, uh, it started to grow on me a little bit, and J. McIntyre's performance helped with that too. Uh, there's simply that sense of weariness seeped into the performance, and uh, and uh, there was simply a very significant shift in how he played the character from that point forward. And uh, one moment that particularly got to me is that is uh, that one bit, and it was either episode 13 or 14, I think it's 14. Um, okay, uh, 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 that whole bit where uh, he gets captured by Surd and he's in the car, and he just has this whole gigantic breakdown where he just where he just finally goes out and admits on his whole, like, <coughs> mad, his whole mad side to think it's kind of an act to hide the fact that he's, you know, he's essentially just this really lonely guy who wants friends. And uh, that, uh, that whole bit kind of got to me a little bit. Mm. As a, and uh, as a, and I do Okabe's arc a little bit more after that, and while I still can't say I'm like super in love with the character, there's definitely a lot of problems with the things he does to his friends, and uh, and I kind of prefer the version of him by Southside Game Zero where he acts a little bit more normal. Uh, J. Michael mm. Tana's performance really did a lot to win me over a bit, and uh, like Kudanishi Moore, it's not my favorite work of his, but it is very good, and I see why people hold it in such high esteem. So, well done, J. Michael Tatum and Trina Nishimura. You guys are awesome. Mm-hmm. Lack. Okay, What's well, the first things first, I have nothing but praise for both of these performances, for Trina as Kirisu and J. Michael Tatum as Okabe. Um, regarding Trina as Kirisu, she portrayed 
Kitasu the way you're supposed to portray a Sundere character. Not, not, like, the thing about Kitasu is, in spite of being a Sundere, she had so much more to her character. There was so much more going on than the fact that she was just constantly denying that she liked Okabe. Because you can't write a character like that. That's idiotic. And Trina really added so many levels to the character in the way that she performed her. Because the, the great thing about the chemistry between these two is the fact that they really do challenge each other. And Trina and, and uh, J. Michael Tatum really were able to just play off of each other so well and give each other so much to work off with one another. Um, Kitasu being the more down-to-earth, the more logical, the more human, almost, between the two. And Okabe being the more eccentric, being the more, you know, just over-the-top and just, like... Borderline Rick Sanchez level of crazy scientist, honestly. Um, if Rick Sanchez actually had charisma. Um, but... <laughs> oh! I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I, I think... Yeah. We'll, we'll hold on that. Uh, we'll hold. Uh, I mean, I suppose that Rick Sanchez is a fence. He's, at, like, you're supposed to think he's a sociopath. So, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Well, Okabe is never presented as a perfect human being from the beginning. I mean, that's kind of the point. He, <coughs> it, it just, I, I think one of the, for for J. Michael Tatum's performance as Okabe, first of all, J. Michael Tatum is reading his own dialogue, and he's probably one of the few humans on the planet who can understand his own dialogue most of the time. <laughs> so, I think that helps a lot. Um... And the fact that he knew exactly how he wanted to perform these lines, I think, really helped the dialogue in a lot of ways. And I think that's why it benefits that he was the screenwriter for this uh, for this show. <coughs> um, and and I, I like the fact that you've got Kurosu, who really tries to steer away from more, like, referencing memes and referencing geek culture and otaku culture against Rintaro who just basically embraces it all and uses it as a as a like as a voc as a vocalic weapon basically he he loves to show off how smart he is and how otaku he is so he'll just say anything and everything <laughs> that makes him sound like a geek because he enjoys being a geek and he likes being the smartest guy in the room, and I think that's why he his relationship with Kurosu is so great. Because in a lot of ways, she's smarter than him, and he he resents that. And at the same time, he also falls in love with her. So he's got a lot of conflicting issues, and the fact that he cares about Mayuri. And honestly, the scenes where he's trying to save Mayuri are some of the best scenes in the series because you really see the human side of Okabe that we don't mm. see much in the show. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Mm. So, My own take on... Yeah. Shall I take... Sure. Shall I bring this to a close? Go, go, yeah. Although go. I resent the fact... You must not be a super science genius, for I understand perfectly what he was speaking about. Reading Steiner? It's like reading... Reading Hawking bedtime material. <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh... No, both of these characters uh, were uh, impeccably matched. Uh, of course, Tatum 
Tatum took a character who is so insufferable and so um, bombastic in his own inner mythology, so up in his own head, who is performing all the time at this ho in Kyoma. He's uh, performing this uh, this over-the-top thing. It, it is almost a defense mechanism at at times, and uh, the character is an enormous ass, and I really, the only, when I first started watching this, the only reason I kept at it the way I did is I thought there was uh, some time travel shenanigans already in play, that I would understand these contexts, and it would all make sense once I watched it on the second time around. And that was the only reason I gave him a pass. But uh, Tatum... Uh, I can understand he probably would have had a breakdown between writing and acting this, because uh, this character has to deal with everything from manic energy to sarcastic teasing to almost romantic intimacy to post-traumatic stress to uh, a whole medley of emotional ranges. And to try and nail that for each part and get... And deliver on that and he lands it every time there's uh i cannot think of a moment where i did not believe that this was okabe the uh there was near that really unfortunate uh, second episode or uh, episode where we had that very contentious scene with uh him grabbing ruka i was really disgusted with that with that, I could believe that this character would act so monstrously, but uh, coming back to just an episode or two later where he's getting uh, really quite close with Kirisu, uh, yeah, I given the how long this character has been in the time loop and how burnt out he is by this and yet how he draws strength from the relationships from the people around him uh i could see over the uh i think they did the math on this to a, somewhere between three and a half and four and a half years of those two days over and over again i <laughs> uh, i could see the whole range of the human condition out of this one person and uh yeah i i bought it all uh, and Trina Nishimura as Kirisu, I, uh, I absolutely adored her, and I felt so bad when, uh, between people treating her badly and then some of the trauma of watching people die in front of her again and again, which she doesn't even know how bad situations are, while we as the audience are firmly aware of how dreadful this is. I admired her, uh, for want of a better word, pluck when she kind of gives uh, Okabe a pep talk to say, no, you need to go and investigate, uh, you need to investigate Moeka. I'll go and keep, uh, I will keep, uh, sorry, Mayuri company right now when we go to this Comic-Con thing. How she more or less stepped up, steeled down, and more or less gave Okabe a dressing down saying, it's not done yet. If you say it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Would it be better for you to witness this again? I'm, from my perspective, I'm still fresh for the fight. I've not 
been traumatized the way you clearly have been. Uh, she gave that character a, strength of a sense of courage and purpose that uh, I was quite impressed by. The moments when she goes on about her father were absolutely heartbreaking, and uh, the whole range of these characters uh, was brought on. That bit that you were talking about, Jet, with her treatment of uh, Mayuri by calling her Sweetie, I could see that. I could read into that. Perhaps she was being a little overprotective of Mayuri or thought of her childish with these weird, sometimes pervy, and definitely crazy people around her as company. I can see her taking on a bit of a parental or protective role there, and that didn't take me out of it, but uh, that was just something I pulled in because I bought the reality of someone who has not always had an easy life, who is likely the smartest person in the room, and who can go from easy competence to being absolutely flabbergasted by the sheer strangeness of what's going on to the horror down to being competent and in control. Yeah, I found that she was the perfect balance to help make us believe that uh, Okabe's character has not completely gone off the handle. And yeah, both of them were pitch perfect in their respective roles and helped sell this wonderful fiction of characters stuck out of time. And as out of time, I fear we too draw to the close. That ding in the distance tells us that the banana in the microwave is done. My future self just, uh, sorry, that last hour we, we got into a segue talking about metal oompas and we, we lost ourselves, but... I sent myself back in time to give us final thoughts before we go. Uh, the organization that when they hear this podcast going to air, they'll start hunting for metal oompas, but we've got our time. So final thoughts, everyone. Roots, what are your thoughts on this overall dub, how it relates to the plot, and how these uh, writers, directors, and, and character actors all give us the performance that is Stein's Gate? Yeah, so this is... Like, it's probably one of the benchmarks of early the early aughts of Funimation's dubs like this was really it was solidly written solidly directed and like I can't pick out a bad performance among the actors um it's a little hard to recommend to somebody just getting into anime now because the because, you know, like, the memes baked into the script, like, <laughs> they may be a little hard to understand if you weren't in at least high school during the time in which um, Steins Gate initially aired in Japan, which was, like, middle of 2011. Mm hmm And so, like, it is, it's... As awful of the things that happen to the the characters in the show, like it is, it is in and of itself solid, and um, I would definitely recommend the dub. Mm -hmm. And I will pass Jet. it on. Jet. Okay. okay um, so it's been many years since I first watched Sidesgate, and uh, this was my first <laughs> time ever watching a dub. Like I said before. Um, I mean, uh, the show is aged pretty well in terms of plot structure, and uh, while the first half of it is pretty slow, 
the second half was a pretty, the second half mostly delivers on good payoff, and um, it definitely kept my attention straight through the finale. So it was so it is a very watchable show. Uh, the character writing, on the other hand, hasn't aged quite as well, and I mean, we're also pretty watchable in spite of that. Uh, some of the character stuff that happens did kind of knock it down a few pegs for me compared to how I felt about the show the first time I watched it. Yeah. Uh, the dub, <laughs> uh, the dub, on the other hand, was a much smoother experience, and while I do have like a couple of nitpicks about the script, the direction of the performances were like really spot on, and uh, definitely enough to balance any of those issues out. And Terry Michael Tatum and Trina Nishimura in particular really bring their A-game to this one. I really enjoyed both of their performances a lot. And, um, you know, I don't think I, okay, I don't think you need me to tell you whether or not to watch Science Gate, because let's be real, if you're watching this, you've probably already seen Science Gate. I mean, uh, okay, uh, but, uh, while I do feel pretty mixed about the series now, I'm ultimately very glad that I opted to go through it again, for better or worse. And, um, yeah, it was definitely an interesting experience watching it again, so... Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> and Lack, what are uh, your thoughts on this closing conclusion? Yeah, definitely thumbs up for the dub all around. Uh, I would highly recommend it to people. The, the thing is, though, I almost feel like it shouldn't be recommended right now. Because I feel like we're at a point right now where we're trying to get as far away from that era of internet culture as we possibly can. So I feel like Wise. maybe in five years or so, it's gonna people are going to come back to Steins Gate... At least the first one, because I, I feel like Zero is actually doing quite well. But I coming back to the original Steins Gate, I think people are going to need a, a little while so that we can get ourselves as far away from that era of internet culture, and people yeah. can kind of look back on it with nostalgia. <laughs> so, I mean, yes. Yeah, there are aspects of like that era of internet culture that are kind of cool, but then well, there's not so much. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like in the same way we're going back to like 80s culture in a lot of ways, I feel like people are going to look back on this in the same way that we kind of look back on 90s culture right now. Mm. So, Interesting. Yeah, so I would definitely recommend it, but keep in, But I guess if you're trying to introduce it to somebody, keep in mind that as for right now, the stuff seems kind of dated, but probably in like five years or so, people are going to look back on it fondly. Mm. So, yeah. Yes. My own take on this was that Steins Gate, I did not enjoy it as much this second time around. The thriller elements are fantastic, but the characterization is grating, and some of the, the, the source material's writing is downright despicable. I will say, though, that as a dub performance, this is a high, this is a gold standard. I would almost hold this up to Cowboy Bebop in terms of examples of what voice actors can do and adapting source material. Uh, I recognize the datedness of some of the memes feel <coughs> old or um, stale, but given that this show is so rooted in a certain place and certain time, it embodies that umwelt so well. And uh, for, for just listening to some of the delightful vocal work that we have to work with. I would recommend this with reservation to anyone wanting to see what the vocal ranges of one cast over 24 episodes can be. And I think that it is, while I would like to see a close brought to the era of, 
uh, dank memes and internet culture, I think it is a worthy thing to uh, remember to use as a as an anchor point in in our history. And so, as to Stein's gate is closing, for the microwave is done, the banana is turned to goo, and the people of Société Européenne pour la Recherche Nucléaire are honing in on our location right now. We must bid you adieu, but fear not. Dubtog is always there to defend you from these surreptitious forces. So, if you are in need of us, if you need to... Find out what secret histories are there. How may we, you contact us? Roots, tell us how we may send you a D-mail through Twitter to get in touch with you and save the world from a black hole. Well, um, you can find me on the old Twitter.com at Roots of Justice, where I mainly just retweet cute animal pics and yes. mainly just talk about, like, general nerdy things. Mostly anime, but sometimes, like, like actual movies and whatnot so like it's a general good time you should give me a follow yes and jet how about yourself what are you doing to help stop the organization uh, okay um you can follow me on twitter after my bingo where i'm usually talking about cartoons or anime or politics or something like that um you can also find me on my blog animation infinity where i occasionally write things and I also do reviews with the Fandom Post this season. I'm reviewing My Hero Academia Season 3. That's been a fun time. And uh, you can also find me on another podcast, Podcast o a where we usually just talk about anime news and shoot the breeze. Mm. And Lack. Lack the Watcher. Where may we watch you on um, the internet? If you follow me on Twitter, that pretty much links to everything and anything you want to see about me. Uh, you can find pretty much just look for Lack the Watcher on YouTube, on Tumblr, on Facebook, and you can pretty much find exactly what you want. Uh, I'm getting back into uh, anime reviewing. Uh, I fall, fell a little behind with that because of being kind of sick and having schedule things, but I'm definitely going to get back to that. Going to get back into voice acting and getting back into writing, too, so that's pretty mm -hmm. much what I'm at. So Excellent. And of course, me, your mad scientist extraordinaire, Sneebs, may be found on Twitter at Uncle Azrael, where indeed I do talk about cartoons, I do talk about anime and games and pictures, and also fight the organization and the fell forces of the Earth through the names of mimetic warfare. Indeed, this has been a delightful time with you fine fellows discussing this dub talk classic. And so, we, I, what's that? The rumbling on the roof? A time machine is materialized! I must go for now, but farewell, good listener. And remember, listen to dub talk next week for more exciting episodes where we review anime and more. Farewell. El Sai Kongru! El Sai Weeaboo. <laughs> <laughs> Otaku on Dabas. Take care. <laughs>